Welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen, geeks and geekettes. This is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, the mayor of Geekville and the host of Geekville Radio, coming at you for day 25 of National Podcast Post Month, a.k.a. Napod Pomo, in the year of our Lord, 2023, the month of November. We only got a few days left, but we still got some great entries here left to go in our Geekville Radio anthology. Next up on the docket are some names you've probably heard of, but you may not know how far back the history goes. And we are talking about the Hardy Boys. No, not Matt and Jeff. We're talking Frank and Joe, the Hardy Boys from the series of young adult or juvenile novels along with Nancy Drew. Believe it or not, those characters go back almost 100 years. And Train and I talked about them this past year for a Halloween-themed edition of Nostalgia Trip. So we'll dial back the clock. We'll relive this episode of Nostalgia Trip, where Train and I talk the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. Geek Bill Radio. Hello once again, fellow geeks and geekettes. This is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, the mayor of Geekville and the host of Geekville Radio. We are continuing our month of crossovers, which is our annual tradition in the month of October in the spirit of Halloween. And we try to do things that might have a horror or mystery or suspense tinge to it. A few years back, we did Scooby-Doo. Then we did The Munsters. Last year, we did The Addams Family. This year, we are doing three characters that have existed now for almost 100 years, believe it or not. Started out in books, have been on TV, have been in the movies and such for many generations. And we are talking about the characters of the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. And fortunately, I don't have to do it alone. Joining me once again for this episode of Geekville Radio's Nostalgia Trip, from the nice soft padded cell in South Kakalaki, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, this is another one of these that I remember fondly from my childhood. So it is definitely a, a, a walk down nostalgia lane from the quite, quite apt that we chosen subject. Because there's really, I think, two things about the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew, the people of our age, at least, the, the Gen Xers and maybe a little bit older, will probably remember the most. And that's the Scholastic books, or maybe a Simon & Schuster, I want to say, in the 70s and 80s, and that TV series with the uh, two male teen heartthrobs in it. We'll, we'll dive into both of those uh, as we go on with the Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew Mysteries. But we'll also touch on other incarnations of the books and TV shows over the years. Why don't we talk about just kind of what each character is briefly so, so they'll understand what the setup was for each of these books. Yeah, absolutely. The main characters for the Hardy Boys were the brothers. Uh, there's Frank Hardy, who is the older one, who is usually depicted as, as being about 18 or 19. And then Joe... Like a senior in high school. Basically. Yeah, and, and he's got the darker hair. And then the younger brother, Joe Hardy, is one year younger. So he's usually around 17 or so. And he's lighter hair with blue eyes. And Frank's the dark hair and, and brown eyes. Yeah, much like our first nostalgia trip, regular. The Duke's the Hatcher, where you delineate Bo and Luke by having one have a dark hair, one have a blonde hair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That that does seem to be the thing. It seems to happen in tag teams, too. One, one guy's dark hair, one yeah. guy's blonde hair. But they Ricky have... Robert. <laughs> yeah. Sean and Marty. Yep. They had their parents, Fenton and Laura Hardy, 
And then there's also the aunt uh, Gertrude. Now, obviously, the, the parents and the aunt, they're, they're minor characters. Always Frank and Joe that do most of the adventuring. Now, Fancy Navarro, he's a detective himself. Correct. That's kind of where the bug comes in, bites the Hardy Boys themselves, yeah, right? E- exactly. He's a professional detective, and the kids, not quite grown yet, are just kind of following the old man's footsteps, you might say. Yeah, kind of like with Encyclopedia Brown, where his father, Phoebe's father's chief of police. So there's this natural, I, I don't know if it's a gene or whatever, of, of wanting to be an investigator. Yeah. But I don't believe, at least in the early on run of the book series, I don't think they ever crossed paths with Nancy Drew. I think that's just something that came along yeah. later. But now what about as far, Nancy? What about her? Yeah. And now as far as Nancy goes... She is also a teenager, usually depicted with kind of kind of brownish, maybe uh, maybe dirty blonde hair, you might say. Mm-hmm. And in high school, 16, 17, 18, right, right around that age. You know, the town, I don't think, was ever given a state. I could be wrong with this because, again, we're, we're going way back to like my junior high school days re- reading this. But I, I remember the, the city or the town was River Heights. And she lived with her father, yeah, but who, who was an attorney. He was not a, a sleuth in his own right. But I believe they implied that it was in the northeast section of the United States because that's really where Stratemeyer grew up. Because I think that if I, if I remember right, the Hardy Boys were like from like Baymont, which was also kind of just once again based on my memory. Just the way they described it, I think it seemed like it was northeast, didn't it? Both yeah. of them. And they, they talk about writing tips for, begin, for for writers. Just write what you know. Don't try to write about stuff you don't know. So that probably would explain why it would be the, the Northeast. And that's kind of been the the way the characters have been depicted all, all over the years. We'll get to the live-action counterparts in a little bit when we talk about the, the, the 70s show. But like, like we said, there was movies and TV shows back in the day where teenagers were being played by people pushing 30. And, you know, but... Thankfully, we don't have to worry about that. And the premise for all these novels, whether you're talking Nancy Drew or the art, was very simple. It was a mystery story. The first act, they introduce something. It's a mystery. It's a conundrum. Somehow, the main characters are drawn in. They investigate. By the end of the story, they solve it. Thanks, Sherlock Holmes, but think it would be in teenagers instead. Not a lot has changed in, in mystery writings, whether it's Sir Arthur Conan Doyle or Agatha Christie or now Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. It all kind of things. And they were always depicted, I always thought, as average teenagers. They weren't like brilliant, super smart, except for the deductive skills. They weren't the, the homecoming queen or the prom king. They weren't super great athletes, but they were okay. They, they, were, they, they were just average. This is the way you always perceive They're just average kids. Yeah. They make them relatable. That's the idea, I think, is you make them relatable to the they audience. They weren't outcasts. They weren't mm-hmm. nerds or outcasts, but they also weren't like the most popular kids. Right. I remember I had a class. For our listeners that listen on regular know that I have two degrees, one in music history and one in English composition. So I had a class in college, this is an advanced level class, like a level 300 class in college. Well, we, we, this, the Nancy Drew and the Hardwoods are actually blown up because we're talking about, about modern, modern literature. And that's where some of my knowledge about the idea of publishing for a juvenile audience came from when I talked about earlier. That it's, our professor was talking about how it was amazing to, to, to her that we had had these books have been around for, like you said, it started the show almost 100 years. And so this is in the 90s, so at the time, 75, 80. So it's still a good amount of time. But these characters have been around and stories have been written by, by multiple writers. And that, yet they still averaged about a million in sales for every book going all the way back to the 20s and 30s. Yeah. And to, she, to this professor, she talked a lot about why that was. And she felt that it kind of, like you said, they were related, that there was a lot of wish for fulfillment in both 
Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. That they were doing this cool stuff that you kind of wish you could do. And I think that's always been an important part of popular literature and popular entertainment. It, it, it's a sense of escapism. It's a, you know, a wish fulfillment that I wish I could do that. And she talked about the pros and the cons, both of the Hardy Boys were like this stylized and romanticized version of like boyhood, teenage years as a young man, and then masculinity. And whether you like that presentation or not, could turn you on or turn you off. And with Nancy, it was the same thing, but with a female. One of the things that always stuck out to me with Nancy was that she was this kind of tough, take no prisoners, no nonsense lead girl, but she was going to beat you with her mind instead of her, instead of her, her fists. And mm-hmm. she was very much the traditional feminine. She always was depicted as wearing dresses and, and skirts and the most, whatever the, the latest fashion trends were. And yet she was as a formidable opponent as some big burly dudes. And, uh, you know, this professor had found, she's, I'm sure a lot of girls found that appealing. So much so, I know a lot of very, very famous, powerful women have openly said that Nancy Drew was an inspiration to them as a young girl. And that includes people like, like Senator Day O'Connor and mm-hmm. Justice Sotomayor, two Supreme Court justices, Hillary Clinton and Laura Bush. Mm-hmm. Both uh, Those are four pretty powerful women. You know, they've gone pretty yep. far in this world. They're all openly saying that Nancy Drew was an inspiration to them. Mm-hmm. I always found that kind of cool. I think in order to talk about the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew, we have to go all the way back to the beginning where they were created for novels. The, the first novels were published in 1927. The Hardy Boys, Joe and Frank Hardy, were created by a man named Edward Stratemeyer, who was a prolific author. He created several book series. He was also the creator of Tom Swift, who had also gone on to several spinoffs. And he created his own syndicate for publishing and, and writing and such. It's similar to like what we've done in Let's Known Geek Hall of Fame. We talk about King Features Syndicate, where a lot of the comic strips were published for newspapers. It was a similar type of thing in that the this syndicate was a bunch of writers that would write for Edward Stratemeyer, usually under pseudonyms, and he would get them published and the writers would essentially get paid a flat fee. Stop me if I'm saying something wrong there, but that's my understanding nope. of how it was. Is Mine it, was too. it was a flat fee. And so one could argue that that is very one-sided towards Stratemeyer. And I think certainly by modern legal sense, that would be true. But you also have to remember, this is the late 20s and the 30s. Where this is right on the time of the Great Depression. So writers would work for peanuts because it was, it was work. Right. Because, I mean... Getting paid $85 or $75 or whatever to write a book seems incredibly strange by today's standards, but it just seems to be how, how it was done because there weren't nearly as much about royalty rights and, and stuff like that that would be in today's illegal contract. Well, I mean, for our listeners, my, most of our listeners are comic book fans like we are. How is this any different than how the comic book world worked for years, both artists and writers? I mean, it wasn't until years later that... that uh, uh, yeah, Schuster and uh, what's his name? Got Siegel the Schuster. Got, you got credit for Superman. How long until Bill Finger and Bob Kane got, got credit for Batman? Yeah, exactly. And na- nowadays with comics, I mean, you'll see the writer and the artist names on the cover of the book like you would see for a novel. And back when we were reading comics in the 80s, you, you almost never saw that. It was it was the characters that were just uh, yep. up front. Hey, they did it in music for years. Both of us are, are, are musicians and fans of music. Three of the greatest country songs of all time were written by Willie Nelson in the late 50s on the same weekend, and he sold them all for like pennies on the dollar. 
crazy by Patsy Klein, how funny how time goes away, and Hello Walls, which are all like legendary country songs recorded by other artists. And Willie's done his own version, but he got paid mm-hmm. to do them. That's it. Unfortunately, fortunately, however you want to look at it, it is a pretty common practice in the world where one creative person creates a some kind of art, whether it's a comic book, a novel, a song, and then to, they have to eat. And so they sell it. It is what it is. So the first Hardy Boys book was titled The Tower Treasure and was written by Franklin W. Dixon. And I'm sure anybody who read Hardy Boys books remembers that name. And it was a hit right away. But here's the thing. I think a lot of people know this. I don't know how widespread it was back in the day. But, of course, Franklin W. Dixon never existed. It was a pen name used by all these ghostwriters from the beginning all the way through well into the 80s that you, you were still seeing his name as the writer. And I remember when I'd read some of these books as a kid, I thought I remember reading that there was a Franklin Dixon, but maybe that must be one of those Mandela effect things, because I could have sworn I was reading about how there there was one and he just sold his name like Stephen King did, but... Because that's well, allegedly it, it, what it, Stephen it, King has done for some of his novels. Is it's his name, but it's actually somebody else writing. How do they different than wrestlers having personas? And then, I mean, Hulk Hogan would have you believe for years his real name was Hulk Hogan. Like Hulk right. is on his birth certificate. Come on, man. <laughs> right. But how it worked, like we said, these writers would submit their writings. They were usually given an outline by Stratemeyer. His daughters also worked for him as, as writers. There were people in the syndicate that would submit the the basic ideas and the outlines, and these writers would then flesh it out from there and create the finished novels. Really not all that different, in my opinion, just to use another example. And since we're talking about the Hardy Boys, I don't want to get too distracted with Star Wars, but right. I think it's similar to what happened to the original Star Wars novelization in 76 or 77. George Lucas is credited as writing that novel, but it was actually ghostwritten by Alan Dean Foster, who would then go on to write a lot of other sci-fi books, including Star Wars books and the original Star Wars sequel that the book came out long before Empire Strikes Back called Splinter of the Mind's Eye. That was originally supposed to be the sequel, but since the movie made so much, they went with the Empire Strikes Back. But back to uh, Hardy Boys. First writer that wrote the first few Hardy Boys novels was a man from Canada named Leslie McFarlane. Any relation to Todd? Because they're both, no, Todd's yeah. American. He's not <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I don't think so. But what I found intriguing about him is he apparently did not like writing the books, but it was a job. This was the Great Depression. Work was scarce. So he did what he, yeah, he did what he had to do. And apparently Stratemeyer was very happy with his work. But these books were huge hits. And... McFarlane wasn't seeing anything as far as money or royalties, but apparently he didn't care because he just didn't care for the characters or the book settings or, or all that stuff. And over the next several years, other ghostwriters included uh, John Button, Harriet Adams, who was actually Edward Stratemeyer's daughter, Andrew Svensson, who I believe was also one of the staff members, but uh, they, they'd all get published under the Franklin W. Dixon name. So uh, anything else as far as the Hardy Boys that you want to add, or should we move on to the Nancy Drew? No, let's jump forward three years to Nancy. 1930 came around, and Stratemeyer, who obviously saw he had a hit in his hands, and he also was able to find out that a lot of girls were reading these books, and really the books becoming popular with younger readers. Well, I mean, he geared, he geared it for, ju- for the juvenile audience. Because you study the history of literature, there's always been children's 
stories out there, you know, Hans Christian Anderson, the Brothers Grimm, all that kind of stuff. This is the first time we start to see it, not just here, but in general, where there's actually this idea of the, the teenage reader being a demographic that writers and public, publishing houses can actually actively work on creating content. And I think really when you make the main characters teenagers, you're kind of by nature writing to a young audience. I, yep, I think that's safe to say as well. I agree. But Nancy Drew was specifically created to target the female readers. Now, I don't think you could truly call her a spinoff because I don't think she actually appeared in any Hardy Boys books before her debut novel. I think it just it just happened. And since everybody knew that they were created by the same person or or at least published around the same time, that it was only natural that they'd kind of become a shared universe, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and they might be one of the first examples of a shared universe. Similar to one app of the same demographic, just one male, one female. So having the accident, maybe. And, and like the Hardys, a pseudonym was used by various ghostwriters. Only this time it was Carolyn Keene. It makes sense that they would use a female name. And actually a lot of the early writers were women. You brought earlier his daughters had a lot to do with it. Because Schottermeyer, mm-hmm. Edward, he died in 1930. Not long after, maybe even before the first Nancy Drew novel came out. So it was his daughters that took over the company, the family business, and they just kept going. So, yeah, you're right. He died in 1930, actually. It was like early, it was like March or something of, of that year. The woman who actually wrote the first several novels was Mildred Wirt Benson. And she actually died in 2002, believe it or not. She was 96 years old at the time of her of her past. She had a long life, didn't she? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty dang impressive. But again, Harriet Adams worked as the the editor along with other people in the syndicate. And so that's how it went for the first probably 15, 20 years. I think it was around the 1950s that they started revising the content of the books. I I think again, because they, they were trying to appeal more to a younger demographic because they realized who, who was reading it. And there was also complaints of too much racial stereotyping. And that's funny to think about. Obviously, I don't want to get political with a statement like this, but when you think about what goes on in the world today and you're hearing complaints of racial stereotyping in the 1940s, it's mm-hmm. like, wow, I, what, what, what were they doing that was so offensive? Probably language. You know, Mark Twain's stuff from the 1800s was accused of the same thing. Yeah. And, and I, think, I think this is a good example of why context is king. I'm not, I'm not making any excuses for that kind of stuff in the past, but to deny that it happened and understand it was, it was normal parlance and normal thought processes by all people would be doing a disservice to the history. You know, it is what it is. It's, it's the way I always tend to look at it is thank goodness we, we, we've come so far and realized there are more ways instead of complaining about the fact that it did exist at one time. But that's, that's me, that's me on my side box. I digress. I'll pull back now. I think maybe something to compare it to would be one of our Lesser Known Geek Hall of Fame inductees, Mandrake, the character of Lothar. Because I think they, when, mm-hmm. they, when he first showed up, he, like, he spoke broken English and depicted as not being very bright. And then a few years later, he's like speaking perfect English and he's royalty. And you know, I think that, that might be something that we're worth uh, comparing to. Yeah, I, I could see that. That's, yeah. that's, that's a fair comparison, I think. An interesting thing about the novels, both Hollywood Boys and H. Drew, because they had this long run, they have been printed and published just like in comic books multiple times, like in different, different publishings. Uh, you'll see this in a lot of classic works literature where it'll be like the fifth publishing or whatever. Because of what we're talking about, 
I think there were some revisions done to the earlier stuff and subsequent publishings and editions of that particular story would have some of this stuff changed, altered, or just removed. I guess we could go on a whole nother debate about censorship or whatnot, but he owns the rights and they're, they're the one publishing it. So I guess you can do whatever you want, but right. Which he probably also lends to the, I'm not my cup of tea, but there are antique and vintage book collectors finding those original printings without that stuff. I mean, it's probably worth a lot of money. Wouldn't you? Yeah, I, I would imagine so, because I do remember reading the original books way back when, because, because I still have it etched mm -hmm. into my brain, the, the, the covers, because they, they were kind of known for the, for the covers back in the day. Because I think it was like yes. a blue hardcover cool or a yellow hardcover. And I, I still remember the cover of that first Nancy Drew novel, the, the secret of the old clock where she's sitting in this green dress and looking at this clock that really looked kind of similar to a clock my grandmother had in her house. But that, that was just a coincidence, I think. But there was something of that cover that just somehow all these years later, I remember, now I don't think it was the original cover because because it, it was probably one of those republished ones because I don't recall anything weird in that book, anything that would have made me raise my eyebrow. But right. you know, like I said, I was in grade school at the time reading that. So there might've been a lot that would have gone over my head at that point. Yeah. Well, the way I was exposed to the, the books, at least, was uh, I, I was a fan of and probably a, a, another nostalgia trip somewhere down the line was a series of books from Scholastic, I believe, called the Encyclopedia Brown yeah. novels. You remember yeah. those? Oh yeah, I, I read a lot of those. And they were kind of more for, they said teenagers like like Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys, they were more for, I'd say like tweeters. Uh -huh. And it was a story, oh, yeah. Of, yeah, a story of, of, of a young boy, much like these, where, they, where he was a sleuth, he was a detective, but, and he ran a little detective agency out of his garage for the local kids. And so I was already kind of, you know, and we, we talked about what we did Scooby-Doo of the first nostalgia trip on the Halloween theme, what was the, I'm, mystery is very much an adjacent genre to horror in my mind. Especially because a lot of times when you get to mystery, you, you have to deal with murder or kidnapping murder. or things like that, that could be very scary. So there you go. When I look at like Gag Round Poe, he, he wrote some of the greatest horror literature of all time, but he's also credited writing like the first detectives with the purloined letter and murders in the room more. So, it, 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 but anyway, my sister being older than me, she read mostly Nancy Drew, but she read Hardy Boys novels as well. And we'll talk about some of her love of Hardy Boys when we get to the television show. But uh, my mother, and you'll remember this, uh, this is hard for younger listeners to understand, was uh, my mother was a member of a book club. Where it was a monthly book club where you paid money and they sent you a book and you'd choose like three or four titles a month and they'd send you a book. Well, she always made sure that she got my sister a Hardy Boys or a Nancy Drew book. She always got me an encyclopedia. Like, so it, when I got a little older and started to outgrow Encyclopedia Brown, guess who inherited the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew book? Me. And those had the famous yellow and blue covers that you were just talking about, hardcover. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was immediately drawn, once again, as a horror guy. So the first one I was drawn to was a Nancy Drew book called The Invisible Intruder. And the cover there was Nancy and her romantic interest in that book, I can't remember his name, standing in like, like an old, like Victorian era mansion's library, you know, the leather bound books on the bookshelves behind them. Mm -hmm. And I think that could be a Mandela effect with me too, but I think it like one of us held it like, you know, a candelabra, but there was this ghostly stingray, you know, like the, the, the fish mm -hmm. appeared, appearing behind them, superimposed against the books. And there's a whole other guy seeing a ghost and a scary looking creature like a stingray was, that was nice. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I remember I read it several times. I remember about the third or fourth time looking at the cover of the book. It had multiple years listed 
of, of printing. So it's probably like the fourth or fifth printing of that story. And I wonder when it was originally printed. I can't remember. And if it was one of those, it was, was, was a culprit of this racial stereotyping that had been revised or, or taken out upon further publishing. Quite possible. They'll know. I have to do the yeah. research. Yeah. Yeah. Very bad. So you flash forward a few years, uh, I think it was the 1950s was the first time they tried to do uh, any sort of TV show based on the Hardy mm-hmm. Boys. And they were actually serials that aired during episodes of the Mickey Mouse Club. And uh, they, they, they only did a few stories of like that, but what one that I did not know at all about about 10 years later in 69 or 70 filmation actually produced uh, an animated series for ABC. And this is one of those things that you just kind of roll your eyes at because when something is a hit, there's 1500 knockoffs. Yeah. Even though it doesn't (laughs) make any sense because the, the, the Archie's animated series was this huge hit on Saturday mornings. So Filmation made decided, well, let's take the Hardy Boys, make them a music group, and then we'll have a hit cartoon. Well, it uh, oh, that was that wasn't was a hit. that was the time when when every card every other cartoon was a group of teenagers that had a, a band, right? Right, right. Because they even had the Brady Bunch as a band, probably because the the Partridge Family had that were a band on, on live action, and of course Scooby Doo was originally thought of as being a band, which is why they had the the Mystery Machine van. But then they decided to just make them a team of mystery solvers. Well, this went over to live action too. Go back to our episode on the monkeys. There's another example of it. It was a created band from the show. Yeah, based yeah. solely on the on the popularity of the Beatles. Exactly. Um, yeah. So it, it, every time I think about this, it reminds me of what you you like to say to, to our listeners about Star Wars. The ones who complained about George Lucas trying to make too much money off of the merchandising and then love Disney body guy, oh, you yeah. ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah. This is a good example of this. You ain't seen nothing. Yeah. This is exactly. what Hollywood does. Okay. Speaking of Star Wars, that brings us to 1977. And like I said, this is the, the, the outside of the books. This is the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew that I remember the most because I have, I have vague memories of it coming on TV because, of course, I was four or five years old or so when it would have first originally, and I remember watching them in syndication. But each of the three stars in this had a measure of teen idol because Parker Stevenson played Frank Hardy and Sean Cassidy played Joe Hardy. And Sean Cassidy was the half-brother of David Cassidy, who was best known for probably being in the Partridge family, but he had some hit songs in the 80s as well. And Sean Cassidy had a career in music in his own right. And a couple of big movies to his belt as well. And they were joined by an actress named Pamela Sue Martin, who played Nancy Drew. And she went on to have success in the original incarnation of Dynasty, the, the primetime soap opera that, that aired in the early 80s. That's probably what she wound up being known more so, probably even more so than, than Nancy Drew. And what was interesting about the format of the show in the first series the first season was the characters actually did not interact. They would alternate between episodes. One episode would be the Hardy Boys story. Second episode would be an Nancy Drew story. The third episode would just be a Hardy Boys story and so on. That's how the first season went. And right. I think that was kind of a gamble uh, in those days because TV in the 70s and 80s, they were, they were so cookie cutter. Each of the episodes yes. a lot of times were self-contained. And if there was any sort of change, it was usually undone by the end of the episode, probably to make syndication easier. To yeah, do. I, 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 it was all, I agree. I think it was all done with, with syndication in mind. 
Mm-hmm. You could syndicate a, I think, what is, what is the magic of 50 episodes? I think before you can Something syndicate like, a theory. Yeah. yeah. And so once you get that magic number, if you don't, if you do them as self-contained stories, it doesn't matter whoever buys them for syndication, they can just claim whatever order doesn't matter. Exactly. You see that, especially with like the law and order stuff that's on like late night on USA network and T- the, the, the Turner stuff. They show them all out of all items. It doesn't matter because they're each a self-contained story. Glennie Larson was the producer. Did the number of hit shows he produced, we could do an entire show just naming off what he, <laughs> all the shows he did. Well, yeah, I mean, you've already but, done it. Didn't you do a show before I came on board, like all the entire Battlestar Galactica? Something like, yeah, yeah. Uh, but for the second season, they streamlined it and put both Hardys and Nancy in the same story. So it, it, it began, it, it, the, the entire second season was basically all three of them interacting. And they eliminated some of the side characters and such. But then for the third season, which was kind of controversial, they actually axed Nancy altogether. And the final season was just the Hardy Boys. And I think even actually Pamela Sue Martin left the series in the middle of the second season and was replaced. But uh, it didn't really matter because, like I said, the the third season, that character was written off anyway. So do you you have any memories as far as like specific episodes or anything that that, uh, I I do have huge memories of the show. Once again, my, my sister was older than me. And so by this time she was, she was like 13, 14 years old when this came out and she was in love with Sean Cass. I didn't think Parker Stevenson was bad either, but she was in love with Sean. She had posters on her wall, the pictures out of one of those, those, those teen heartthrob, like tiger beat or whatever it is, you know, Mm -hmm. teen beat, whatever. Of Sean, she, I remember, I remember the, the album that she had and she played constantly, which was called Under Wraps. And it was just kind of a cool cover because for those that are old of us, I don't know remember, you always had that plastic lap, shriek lap around the cover to a 12 inch final. And so this cover art for the album looked like Sean was actually trapped against the plastic lap and was pressing against it. And he had a, a big, big hit with uh, a, a cover of the Do Run Runs. Mm-hmm. Oh, she played that all the time. And so when she heard he was going to be on a TV show that was geared for kids, it was required viewing in our home. Sunday night at 7 o'clock, if I was in the lot, because we were living in Denver. So Denver has mountain time zone, same as you have in Central. It's an hour off from the West Coast of the East Coast. And uh, you had the 5 o'clock news where I had the South Carolina at 6 o'clock. Same thing. And so we watched it all the time. And, and I, I, I don't really strongly remember any one particular story. I just remember it had a nice, cool, like mystery or vibe that my little eight, 10 year old mind could get around. So I, I do remember the second season when they did start in quotes. And the funny thing is she didn't, this is important. So I'm bringing it up. She didn't like the Nancy Drew episodes as much as she did the Hardy. And that was geared more for her as a girl. She yeah. just was. She was at that age, she was discovering boys and she was in love mm-hmm. with Sean Caston. And when they incorporated the two in the second season, they did them. And this is a, a, a fairly standard, I'll, I'll stay in the Star Wars analogy when I have to explain this, since we've already brought that, that genie out of the bottle. A, lo- a very common thing you can do as a storyteller when you're writing movies or television shows, if you have a large ensemble, you can introduce all the characters together at the beginning, have the, the action split them off and then have them rejoin at the end of the third act. That's often mm-hmm. what they did. Right. Just like, you know, you do that in Star Wars all the time. We see them like, well, we use Empire. For Everybody's together at the base and off. There's the big battle into the first act. Start of the second half. Luke goes off to Dagobah. The, 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 the Millennium Falcon with Leia and Han is being chased by the Empire. And so there's two separate stories going on at the same time. And you're jumping back and forth between the two. 
to have them all eventually reunited in the third act of the investment. It's the same thing they do with these. They would introduce it. The mystery would, would, would be presented. The Hardys would go off on their little tangent of their, of what they're trying to discover. Nancy go off on hers and they'd be reunited to solve the mystery. Yeah. Could we do that? Yeah. In a half hour or two. You know, it was always Velma, Shaggy and Scooby, or sometimes, sometimes just Shaggy and Scooby. And then Fred or Fred and Daphne and sometimes Velma would each yeah. go off. They discover something, they come back together at the end of the show to solve the mystery. Right. So it, it, it's a pretty common trope. And I don't remember how they explained Nancy Drew being written off, but I know, I remember my sister going, she could care less because she was only watching mm-hmm. the Park students and Sean Cassidy. Anyway, so that's why I brought that up. I mean, this is Hollywood. They don't take a lot of chance. I'm sure they did research groups and, and polls and questioned regular viewers. And they were finding that Nancy Drew just wasn't as popular with viewers as the Hardy Boys was. And I, I, I think personally, I could be wrong, but I think that you had a lot of boys that related to the Hardy Boys because they were boys and a lot of girls that were more into the Hardy Boys than they were Nancy Drew because of the age the girls were talking about. They were beginning to discover boys and they had a crush on Parker Stevenson and or Sean Cathy. So that's my opinion. You got any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, Parker Stevenson would go on to be in a couple other shows. I, I remember he was in a short-lived sci-fi show called Probe. A few years after that, he starred in the first season of Baywatch, which I think was actually on network TV before it went to to syndication. And he he also, at the time, was known for he was Mr. Kirstie Alley, you might say, because this was about the time Kirstie Alley was well known for being in Cheers and being in movies. They actually met on the set of the miniseries North and South, which was based on a trilogy of books that was turned into a trilogy of, of, of miniseries by ABC. That is about two families, a Northern family and a Southern family, one slave owners and plantation owners, and the other being a, a, a steel factory and how the two sons in this family meet and become best friends at West Point. So it's just a historical, kind of like the James Mitchell stuff. And it was written by a writer named John Jakes. I love them. I love the books. My mom did, so we watched it. And between the end of the first miniseries, which was the first book, and when they got to part two, they recast one of the major characters, Billy Hazard. As Parker Stevenson, Kirstie Alley was in from the get go. She played the oldest sibling of the Northern family, and that's where they met. And kind of odd, they played brother and sister in a movie. Right up getting married, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it is what it is. I remember at the time when they first got married, they obviously were trying to have children, and I think Kirstie lost like four or five kids because it was yeah. all over the tabloids. Do you remember that? Yeah. She came out yeah. miscarried. It was like typical tabloid stuff. And, and entertainment, the more salacious, the more it sells, right? And here's these two big stars. So, yeah, there you go. But that show ended in 1979. And there was a series that aired in 1995. And then one that actually started up in 2020. I think it, was, I think it aired on Hulu. Uh, I, I think the Hulu series actually got a second season. But the 1995 one, I think, only lasted like half of one season. Well, this is a combination of both Nancy and Hardy. Or- I believe it was just the Hardy Boys. I know Nancy Drew had a series, I think, on CW. I, I don't know if it's still going, but I know I remember seeing yeah, ads. Yeah, she did. For, I forgot about that. Because yeah. I would see commercials for that during, during a lot of the Arrowverse shows. One of the things that's also worth mentioning as far as the characters go, and it, it happens in comics. This is, this, is, this is a common thing, so it's nothing groundbreaking. But the characters would get updated with whatever new book series or TV shows that was coming out. Like if you looked at the books in the eighties, they, they kind of mm-hmm. would have the loud eighties colors and Nancy Drew would kind of have the Jane Fonda workout unit hard on or something like physical music video by the, the late great Olivia Newton, John, you know, that it just kind of had that vibe to it. 
And then in right. the most recent book series, it's like she's driving a hybrid and eating vegetarian type food and all that. So they, they it definitely do whatever, to, whatever the current fad is, they, they, they update the, the uh, characters to fit that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like how, when I think Spider-Man got relaunched with Ultimate Spider-Man, it's like Peter Parker starting web design, not nuclear physics. Well, it's just going to be honest, it's probably a little bit more realistic for a teenager anyway. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that kind of brings us to, to current as far as the state of the characters. It's not like I am chomping at the bit for, oh man, they really need to do the Hardy Boys justice, but I certainly wouldn't mind seeing a TV show or maybe something with a Netflix format where they maybe keep an ongoing story on. I, I, I think it is possible that they, they could do a hit out of it, but I think one of the things that's happened is you do, you do the same thing too many times. I mean, they've already done four series by now and really only one of them was really any successful. I don't, I don't know if you had any opinion on that or if they should keep them separate or try to keep them going as a trio. Did you have any opinion as far as that goes? I don't, I don't know like, which one works better. I mean, for me, the other, the other thing you can do and the other way we, we saw the Hardys a lot and Nancy Drew would be movies, which mm-hmm. with streaming services seems to be, you can do, mm-hmm. as opposed to doing these condensed series on the street, they just do a, a, a Hulu or Netflix makes a series. That, that reminds me of, was it 2007? They had a Nancy Drew movie came out. It was a, ma- it was a major motion picture released in theaters. My oldest daughter was, once again, at the same age when it came out that my sister was when the TV show came. And it stars Emma Roberts as, as, as Nancy. And this is long before she became a star because she was, that's one thing I can say the whole guy has definitely improved over time because you watch those 80s movies and they cast teenagers and older stuff, 30 year olds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whereas yeah. starting in the 2000s, they actually had teenagers. I mean, look at Stranger Things. So they have kids playing kids. And this is, for those who don't know, Emma Roberts, she's Eric Roberts' daughter, Julia Roberts' niece. And she has gone on to have quite the horror cred and career. She's starred multiple seasons in the cast of American Horror Story. She was the lead character in Scream Queens, the, the cool horror comedy uh, movie about a sorority on Fox. Kind of makes, kind of is real meta and looks at like the tropes of, of like females and horror movies. The house mom is, is Jay Lee Curtis, so I think that says it all. But yeah, I remember, I remember taking my daughter to see this theater. I remember her getting her the DVD for Christmas. And I probably seen that a dozen times and cannot remember the storyline. I just remember, <laughs> like you're saying, the look, like the clothes she wore and what she ate and the class she was taking to school in her car was nearly updated for an early 2000s to what I remember reading in the books in the 80s, which I, I knew even then were dated because I realized that they, they were supposed to be stories that took place 20 years earlier in the 60s. But it's a good example of how they update the characters to fit the time of whenever this released. And it, I thought, if I remember, like, it, it, she really enjoyed it. I thought it was good, even though I can't remember the storyline. Uh, if I recall that correctly, my- that that movie was also had, like, romantic comedy elements to it. Like, like there there was a lot of comedy. It did. It. It did. Yeah, she had a love interest. And very typical of a teen romantic comedy where the boy has a crush on the girl, but, but the girl either friend zones him or, or is kind of oblivious to the fact that, that he has a crush pretty in pink. <laughs> yeah. It happens all the time yeah, in every team romance comedy. Mm-hmm. So there were elements of that. Niche. And I think maybe that approach would probably be a better way to go. Cause let's be honest, weekly episodic television, unless you get something like NCIS or law and order, it's kind of dying. And right. so, I mean, everything's kind of going streaming. I, I would think that maybe a series of movies with maybe both characters or both sets of characters. 
maybe do a handful of Hardy Boys movies, a handful of Nancy Drew movies, and then you do a couple specials yeah. where they you know, where they cross over, kind, kind well, of like, like the Arrowverse type like, thing. You know? Yeah, well, like the Netflix Marvel stuff. We have Luke Cage, of Iron Fist, we have Daredevil, and then it's all leading to the, the big crossover. That, I think, would probably be a better way to go. Really, the way since the beginning of, 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 of this media franchise, each story, whether it be Nancy or, or, or Frank and Joe, are kind of standalone, like we were talking about. So it's hard to do anything episodic. So I think the best thing to do is maybe, like you said, two or three movies of each one. We, we, we did a review of the Fear Street movies a few episodes ago. Of, of Yeah, something like that would be great. Of, yeah. of Examine the Dead. Exactly, where each movie is kind of a standalone, but at the end, they tie it all back again. And I think that's kind of what R.L. Stein did when he wrote the books they were based on. So maybe the same same approach. Yeah. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of this nostalgia trip, looking at the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. We have a lot of stuff set for the immediate future here at Geekville Radio, because like I said at the top of the show, this is our annual crossover. Also, one of the reasons why we chose Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew is you can kind of consider them a crossover. But we got a lot of stuff coming out soon. We got our annual two-episode of Examining the Dead for the month of October. We're going to do stuff Geekville proper. I am assembling some horror-themed Doctor Who stuff for Examining the Doctor. And it's also worth mentioning, you, you said uh, Eric Roberts earlier, he, he's actually reprising the role of the master for audio shows for a company called Big Finish. So there's our obligatory Doctor Who reference, because he, he <laughs> was the master in that lone uh, American TV movie and was pretty darn good at it, I think. He's a, he's a great villain. Was anyway. that the role of Daltrey in it? Roger Daltrey? Uh, played the doctor? N- no, no, it was Paul McGann. With, oh, okay. was, was the doctor in that one. But, but Eric Roberts was probably the biggest mainstream star that was in it, and he was going to be recurring as the master it never took off so and the train you want to uh, maybe give give our listeners a tease of what might be in store for examining the dead this no, month yeah, exactly dead this month of course it's halloween time so a big one we'll do our regular news probably going to talk a lot about the number on where horror movies are once again saving hollywood some of the biggest movies this year so far are actually horror movies as far especially when you look at actual budget versus what they made at the box office but Usually I talk really all the time about how horror movies spake money because of the very nature. But we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the new Chucky series, the season two. Talk about some of the new releases this month in October. Hellraiser on Holy Holiday Inns comes out as we record this that this weekend. Things like that. And then the Grissom Twosome, we were gonna review to werewolf movies. That includes well, there were showing a werewolf movie. Spoiler, we will be reviewing the the Bisley Plus Werewolf by Night, which you still haven't watched yet, have you? Yeah, right. I'll, I'll I'll be watching it this this weekend, so I'll be okay. I'll be well versed so be by up. the time we record. Yeah, yeah. and then we're just gonna when we get into into the crystal fall, we will just look at uh, my favorite monster horror movie. We'll just talk about werewolf movie as a whole. So that's kind of what we got to look forward to. Don't forget to check out the Examine the Dead Facebook page every day. I'm doing my hand steal a lesser known horror movie trailer, and that means there will be 31 by the time I'm done. And as usual, we will have a condensed package of audio only. That will release on Halloween Day when I release the last one. So some good movies so far. One that one that Seth's actually seen, mm-hmm. and another one that you want to see. So we're yeah. on day eleven already, and we get, we're already at a couple that even got the non-horror guy interested. But heck, and it's also worth mentioning this is your third year of doing it now, which means by the time it's over, this, this, there's going to be ninety three horror movies that you will have personally seen and recommended in your yeah. summaries here. So think about that. No, you know, yeah. You, if you're not at least one movie on there that doesn't pique your interest, 
I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> you're, you're probably not I a do not repeat. Fan, no. Yeah, I do. I do not repeat. These are all new movies. Every year, I, 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 I make the concerted effort to go back and look at what I listed the year before, or years, I should say, and make sure that that, that I don't repeat anything that I've I've put down before. So, like you said, ninety-three movies <laughs> by the time this yeah. month is done. So, yeah, yep, absolutely. If you're listening to us for the first time. Geekville Radio's Nostalgia Trip is part of the Geekville Radio podcast family. You can find all the shows at geekvilleradio.com. You can do you can subscribe there or if you want to look through the podcatcher of your choosing, we're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, you name it. Uh, iHeartRadio. Just do a search for Geekville Radio. You should find all of our all of our shows. And we are on the social media, Geekville Radio on Facebook and Twitter, and actually coming soon on Instagram as well. So there, there is a Geekville Radio Instagram on the way. And Train, if anybody wants to talk to you about horror or wrestling or any Geekville stuff, where can they find you? you can always find me at CrazyTrain underscore JB uh, on Twitter. That's also pretty much every social platform I'm on. That's, that's my handles. So just give it a look and you see a... Bald-headed wrestler dude with the hospital scrubs on and a teddy bear. More than likely, it's me. So this has been Geekville Radio's Nostalgia Trip with your return to the uh, days of yesteryear. And we will talk to you folks again next time. Geekville Radio is not sponsored or endorsed by any products or services unless specifically stated. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests do not reflect the views of GeekvilleRadio.com, the Wrestling Brethren podcast, family, or any of their affiliates. Some media used in Geekville Radio is the product of their respective copyright holders, all rights reserved. What are the chances we could ever have Frank and Joe Hardy meet Matt and Jeff Hardy? Mm, possibilities. Do you think they do it? That's the thing. <laughs> no, only if it's broken that hard. Okay. <laughs> delete. Delete. <laughs> That's another trip down memory lane. I'm sure a lot of people my age, younger than me, older than me, they probably have some sort of memory with something with the Hardy Boys. It was still pretty fascinating that those characters go back a hundred years, practically. But that does bring us to the end of this installment of the Geekville Radio Anthology for Napod Pomo National Podcast Post Month, November twenty fifth. 2023 we'll be jumping back in tomorrow we're gonna have a big one tomorrow folks this will be an exciting episode for comic fans we did several tributes a couple of years back for the passing of stand the man lee and i will have those ready for you tomorrow day 26 for national podcast post month we'll do our double shot tribute to stand the man lee This is Geekville Radio. We're available at geekvilleradio.com. Also at the podcast platform of your choosing, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. I think we're still on Stitcher. iHeartRadio. Basically anywhere you can get your podcast, you can do a search and you can find and subscribe to Geekville Radio. Give us a like. Give us a follow on social media. Facebook, Twitter, X, and Instagram are all at Geekville Radio. And give us a review. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you think we can improve on. Let us know if there's stuff you want to hear, whether it comes for Nostalgia Trip or Lesser Known Geek Hall of Fame, Examining the Doctor for the Doctor Who fans, Examining the Dead for the horror fans. Let us know what you want to hear, and uh, we'll we'll listen to you. I mean, no serious request not considered. I'll, I'll, I'll put it that way. 
But if it, if it's good, you know, we'll we'll do it. I mean, how's how's that for a a rock solid commitment? Just give us a suggestion and uh, we might do it. But gonna power down here in the Geekly Radio Studios. We'll talk to you folks tomorrow with our tribute to Stan the Man Lee.